Well, good morning. Let me just once again welcome our guests to Fellowship Church. Thank you for being here. We are grateful and thankful all the time for the ways that God leads and brings people uh, to our church. And we are now entering into a time of our worship service where we respond to the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God. And so that is what we're going to do right now, and it's something that God in his word has told us that we are to do when we gather. And we just started a new preaching series uh, for the summer uh, called Hope in Suffering, and uh, Pastor Stephen began that uh, last week. We're going to continue throughout uh, the summer, and you'll be hearing uh, from all of us, uh, the pastors, as as God is uh, leading us through that. Today we're going to look at what it means to suffer with sustaining grace, sustaining grace. And and I wanted to just start by asking a question for you to consider that really connects well to this idea that we're going to be looking at today. And, And the question is this, is the relief of human suffering the ultimate good? Is the relief of human suffering the ultimate good? If all of us here today committed ourselves, just, just this group here, all of our, the, the rest of our lives uh, to the cause of relieving uh, suffering in our lives and in the world, would we be doing the ultimate good? I wanted to reference a, a, another school of thought in that regard. Um, in uh, Buddhism, the, there are four noble truths, and they state that first, life is suffering, two, the cause of suffering is desire, three, the cause of desire then must be overcome, and then four, when desire is overcome, there is no more suffering. And, and so Buddhism, one of its claims is to be a religion of understanding the nature of human suffering. And not just understanding it, but more importantly, for Buddhists to transcend it, to transcend human suffering. And, and I think that's a question that we have to ask ourselves as, as Christians, should that be our goal? Are we trying to transcend Suffering. To understand and transcend suffering, is that the goal of Christianity in comparison, in contrast to to Buddhism? Maslow said that we suffer when we don't get our basic needs met. There's a lot of different schools of thought here. I was reading an article from Psychology Today, and it was talking about the roots of suffering. And it said in this article, and it was written by a very well-respected, uh, educated, uh, well-educated person, that, that, um, that the roots of suffering are grounded in our evolutionary heritage. And, and then it went to explain a little bit of what that meant. And honestly, I didn't understand fully what that meant. But again, there is a desire to try to understand suffering. Well, I can tell you that today we won't be getting our understanding of suffering from Buddhism, from Maslow, or from psychology today. 
we will see what the word of God has to say on this because it does have to say a lot. Through the example of Paul and what the scripture, what the scripture teaches us, we're going to see that the relief of human suffering is not the ultimate good and it's not the ultimate or primary purpose of God even. Just think about that. It's not his ultimate primary purpose. God actually has, and we'll see that today, higher purposes. So it's not just that there's a a purpose that's kind of go along, uh, you know, even with it, and and he just chooses that. No, there's higher purposes, greater purposes, what, what the scripture would define as gospel purposes. And, and when we as Christians get this wrong, we really, we, we, we greatly misunderstand our circumstances in life. We, we see our circumstances through the wrong lens and, and then it's difficult to see them correctly. And I understand and recognize as a pastor of this church and having spoken with many of you in many of your most difficult circumstances in life that many come in, even today, suffering, carrying a heavy burden. And, and my encouragement to you today is that I believe you will find hope in God's word today, in God's truth. And whether or not you're a part of our church or not, maybe this is your first time here, I believe that God has for you today, that God also has for you hope. He has you in mind. And so let's, let's all be open to that, to how God wants to speak to us. So let's pray together and ask him to lead and to guide us. Lord God, we recognize that you are The God of hope, we also recognize, Lord, that none of us that are here today are experiencing anything that is apart from your divine knowledge. Whatever it is, whatever our burden, whatever our struggle, whatever our situation, our God knows about it and desires to give us hope. So I pray, Lord, for each and every person, whatever it is that they carry today, that they would find that hope in your truth and that you would do what you have always promised that you will do. You will will fulfill your promises. So we look forward to that even today, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So would you turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians, uh, the second letter to uh, the Corinthian church, uh, the body of Christ, chapter 12, and I'm going to begin by reading our text, and then I'm going to break down uh, that text uh, a little bit for us. So I'm going to start reading uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, starting at verse 1. Uh, This is Paul, the apostle. Uh, He says, I must go on boasting. 
Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. So he said, I'm going, to talk about, I'm going to talk about visions and revelations. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. That is Paul referring to himself. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, again, reference to himself, was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not even utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses, though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of those revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So what we have here is Paul given a heavenly experience, a vision, an incredible vision. And this experience that Paul had actually presented him with an opportunity, believe it or not, to sin. That's what verse 7 is telling us. So, so this scripture tells us that this amazing experience, right, this very, very uh, high spiritual high, caught, being caught up into the third heaven, it actually created a temptation for Paul to sin. What was the temptation? A temptation of pride, a temptation of boasting, a temptation of self-exaltation. He, had, he was tempted, being tempted to self-exalt, exalt himself. So what did God do? He gave Paul a thorn in the flesh. Verse 7, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. In other words, because the incredible vision that God gave me was so great and so incredible, God gave me something else. A thorn was given me in the flesh. Now, what does Paul mean by thorn? So lots of questions in the text today that I'll ask and then answer and hopefully help us to understand this better. That word thorn in the Greek where we're translating thorn, uh, what we're translating from is skalops. It actually has a meaning of, of stakes, like, like large stakes, not, not a small thorn that you get into the, in the tip of your finger. In fact, this word skalops was used in reference to people being impaled. So these are large. You would be impaled on scallops. So it's, little, it's more than a little thorn. 
And, and so what, what Paul is saying is the way he writes this is he was given this thorn in the flesh, this scallops, sometime after the third heaven experience, most likely very soon after that, that happened, that event. But what he's saying here is the pain and the suffering that he is experiencing from the scallops is present with Paul now. As he writes this, he is continuing to experience pain and suffering even 14 years later. And he has been suffering from this scallops the past 14 years, is what he's telling us. This has been for him sustained suffering and pain for a decade and a half. Now, let's, let's try to break down what the nature of the thorn is. Now, Paul is intentionally vague on this point. He's, he is not specific. So we're not going to spend a lot of time, any time really, speculating on what it may have been specifically. But what I would like to do is give you some categories of thought, and I have three of them. Categories of thought that this thorn most likely would have belonged to. So the first category would be physical ailment. Potential for it to be a physical ailment. Many, many have said, well, it was probably something Paul suffered from uh, that was physical. Many different, many different uh, options are given by many different people. Another category was a spiritual attack on Paul himself as an individual that he himself was feeling as a, as a, as a believer and, and feeling this attack. Third was a spiritual attack on Paul's ministry, the ministry that he was committed to, his churches, his disciples, uh, the people, the gospel, uh, which again for Paul, he would have taken very, very personally. So we're going we're gonna to explore this in a little bit more to understand this a little bit better, but we're going to do it just by what the text is, is telling us. Uh, so we have these three categories that this, this uh, thorn could have belonged to. But let's break down more. How does Paul describe this suffering? How does he describe the suffering? Well, again, I already mentioned a thorn in the flesh is one. We looked already at the meaning of thorn, but what about this word flesh? This word flesh is a word we've seen many times. It doesn't necessarily indicate a physical issue. In fact, with Paul, he writes of it often as a word that is more referencing something in the spiritual world, like, like the human sin nature, the flesh. Paul writes about that a lot, writes about that in Romans 8, Galatians 5, many other places where this would be a word that he would use. So we have, we have a thorn, this, this scallops, this stake, and then we have this word flesh that this scallops is, is uh, piercing into and it seems to be connected to what Paul would refer to as the flesh. Another description that Paul gives here is a messenger of Satan to torment me. This phrase really needs to be studied and understood in the context that it's written. Paul uses the word for angel, angelos here. 
That word that we're translating messenger is angelos. It's, it's the same word that we would translate as angel in a bunch of other places in scripture. So it's where we're getting this messenger. Well, what is an angel of Satan? Well, we would understand that to be a demon, right? A, a, an angel from Satan would be a demon. And what is this demon doing as Paul's describing? He is tormenting Paul. That's how the NIV translates it, tormenting. The ESV translates it harassing, harass. And so what Paul's doing here is he's describing this suffering and this pain that he is, that he is experiencing as being administered by an emissary of Satan. And, and he's doing that uh, Satan is doing that in an attempt to torment Paul. Torment, that word comes from a word that means to treat with violence. So, to treat with violence. So, so what we're saying here is, is, this is this is very serious what Paul is experiencing. So he's not annoyed by this. He's not aggravated by this. He is tormented by it. He is harassed by it. He is being treated violently by a messenger of Satan is how he is describing this. So this, is, this would be what we would certainly consider to be serious and significant suffering that he's going through. To what degree and to how is it, how, he, it, that part is, is hard to explain because he's not telling us that, but he is telling us this. Now, what is Paul's understanding of the purpose of this suffering and pain? He tells us that. What is, the, what is his understanding of the purpose? Humility. Humility is the purpose. He tells us that to keep Paul from becoming conceited from self-exalting. The purpose was humility for Paul. Now, you have to back up and say, okay, wait a minute. If we're looking at what he's writing here, if this was a messenger of Satan, then does that mean that, that Satan was trying to teach Paul humility? No, God was humbling Paul. So, do you see what's happening here in, in, in Scripture and in life? We have a work of Satan, torment, accomplishing a purpose of God, humility. You follow that? That has happened before. It continues to happen today, and it will happen again. This is part of what it means that God takes what the enemy means for evil and he turns it for good. This is divine sovereignty at work. God is sovereign over this entire situation. Even the angelos, tormenting Paul, yet this evil messenger, and what he is doing, this evil messenger, is evil. But what God is doing is good. That's what we need to understand. What, what the enemy is doing is evil, but what God is going to do through that is good. God is using evil intentions 
for good purposes. This is what God does. This is what God does. We need to remember that when it comes to how we process through circumstances. So, what did Paul do about this pain and suffering situation that he was in? What did he do? He did what we would do. He pleaded with God that it should leave him. He pleaded with God that it should leave him. Verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. So Paul did not just pray about this. You know, it wasn't like, you know, I'm going to just pray about it as I'm driving to work in the car. Like he is pleading with God about this situation. This is begging. This is beseeching. That word that's you, that we translated pleaded in other places in the New Testament has been translated as beg, begging. So what is Paul pleading with God to do? That it should leave me. Interesting again the way Paul writes this because the word for leave there in the Greek is used other places in the New Testament at least 14 other places that I was able to find. And in each case of its use in the New Testament, it referred to a person departing. That same word, 14 other times in the New Testament, was in reference to a person departing, which is why Paul wrote it this way, leave. Seems to indicate to me at least an indication, not a sickness, not an infirmity, not, not something like that, but a person. So it seems that Paul is asking the Lord to cause this spirit, this, this messenger of Satan, to leave and to stop tormenting him, possibly happening through a person. Don't know that for sure. But it's possible that what was happening here is that a person was being used by the enemy in this way. Maybe not. But in any case, it was certainly a messenger of Satan. So again, all of this sounds very spiritual to me. Not, not physical in my, in my estimation. And, and part of that also is not to mention the fact that Paul, when you read the, the book of Acts and then you read other other, uh, his other letters and epistles, he, he really does seem to be unfazed almost by physical persecution. Uh, he gets stoned in, in Lystra, right? Goes back again, doesn't even mention it, you know? Like, yeah, we're just going back there. I know I was stoned and left for dead, but no mention of that. We're just going back. We're going to th- go there and preach the gospel. Beaten in Philippi, you know, he talks about the things that happened to him, shipwrecked, you know, these other things that he mentions, but he doesn't do it from the standpoint that please God make it stop. What he prays instead is that the gospel would go forth in spite of these things. So Paul tells us that he pleaded with God on three specific occasions. I think it is better for you to think of this in terms of three specific occasions as opposed to one night Paul prayed at 6 o'clock, then he prayed at 7.30, and then he prayed at 8.30. And that's what he meant when he said three times. And then he never prayed about it again. I think, think about it more that there were probably occasions where it was very significant. Maybe there was one occasion where he prayed and fasted for days. 
And he remembers that as a very specific time in his life where he begged God over time to remove this. Maybe there was another time where he had other believers around him and he was sharing with them what was going on. And together in a, in a, as a group, maybe there was a, a time of prayer and in that time of prayer, he felt and knew that God was moving and, and never forgot that moment and is referring to that as, there, this is one of those times where I pleaded with God and begged God and, and, and maybe there was another time where he was talking about it and people said, you know what, Paul, we're gonna pray for you and we're gonna lay hands on you and we're gonna pray and we're gonna ask God to deliver you from this. He, he seems to have three very specific occasions in mind where this happened. But I don't think this was something that Paul only prayed about three times. I think he has, he's prayed about it and brought it before the Lord as a request. But he has very specific remembrance of asking God specifically to remove this. And he references that here. So how did the Lord answer his plea? How did he answer? He answered this way, my grace is sufficient for you. Verse nine, but he said to me. So you could kind of get the sense of how Paul's writing this. Here's what I was asking, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Do you think that, based on everything we've just read, leading up to verse 9, that that was what Paul wanted to hear. Is that what we want to hear? When we're begging and pleading, is that what we really want to hear? And then the other question is, what does that even mean? What is, what is happening here? What is, what is the Lord telling Paul? Paul had been pleading with God for relief. And how did God grant suffering relief to Paul? How did God grant this suffering relief to Paul? This is the question we have been building up to. So don't miss where this leads. First, not by removing the suffering and the pain. How did God grant the relief? Not by removing the suffering and the pain. That's the first thing that we see. In Paul's case, the thorn would not be removed. But this was precisely what he was pleading for. This is what he was asking for. Did God not understand him? Did he need to do it, you know, a fourth time? Maybe a fifth? Like, what was happening here? He prayed for it to leave, but that is not how God would answer this prayer. Second, by giving Paul grace sufficient to endure the torment. So how did God grant relief? Well, he didn't grant it by taking away and removing the suffering but by giving Paul grace sufficient to endure the torment. So the Lord gave Paul here sufficiency of grace. 
You might say, what is that? What is sufficiency of grace? It's, it's essentially grace for every need in life. It is sufficient. You know what that means? It meets the need. Think about that. What the word is saying is that the need isn't greater than the grace. Because the grace is sufficient to meet the need. Now, does this mean that Paul, or that God gave Paul saving grace? Because we've talked about grace before, just to make sure we don't misunderstand grace here. Is this the grace of Ephesians 2? What we would refer to as a, a saving grace. No, this is, this is more the fruit of saving grace, which is sustaining grace. It is grace that is comforting and empowering and calming. It is the presence of God kind of grace. Presence of God kind of grace. Now, using uh, Pastor Stephen's illustration from last week. So if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to listen to that message last week so you can connect these together. Um, but in the illustration that he gave, he talked about uh, the, the person that fell into the water and the people who were trying to help him up and that the person had to jump into the water, right? He used that as a way to illustrate. That's what, that's what the Lord does with us. Jesus goes into the water of our suffering with us. He goes into the water of our suffering with us. But here's the thing we have to remember. Not always to get us out. In this case, it is to sustain us through it. So here's what the Lord is telling Paul. I'm getting into the water with you. I'm here with you. Look at me. Look at me. See me. Don't look at the water. You're going to be okay. Because I'm here. I'm with you. This is the kind of grace the Lord is providing here. It's his presence. His gracious presence. Notice what else is provided. Not only grace, but also power. Number three, by providing divine power to strengthen us through the suffering. So he provides the sufficient grace, but he also provides power. For my power is made perfect in weakness. So God's power for us is made perfect. With that word perfect means that it's brought to completion in our weakness, in our infirmity. In our frailty, God's power is made complete in us. Can't swim anymore. Can't keep going. Can't think of what the next day, the next week is going to be like. My power is here for you. Is what he's saying. This grace... This sustaining grace is a channel for divine power. The sustaining grace. So think of it this way. God's presence with us sustains. God's power for us strengthens. 
God's presence with us sustains. God's power for us strengthens us. And remember, it is God's strength, not ours. So he's not jumping into the water and saying, you just need to breathe better. Your breathing's out of order. You need to, you need to, you know, you need to swim a little faster. You need to keep the feet moving. You know, if you hold your arms this way, you'll float better. That's not what he's doing. He's saying, my power is what you need, not more of yours. Not more of your effort, more of me. So think of it this way. What was Paul, what was he contributing in all of this? What was his contribution in all of this? Well, Paul's contribution in this whole situation was weakness, frailty, lack of strength, and potential for self-exaltation. He's really contributed a whole lot, right? This was his contribution, weakness, frailty, a lack of strength, and oh, by the way, without your help, I will self-exalt. What was God's contribution? Sustaining grace, divine power, all through his presence with us in the midst of our suffering. He's with us. He's there. Now, why is Paul able to boast about his weakness? Why is he able to boast about his weakness? Look at verse 9. Therefore, so he has a conclusion now. He's telling you all that's going on. I pleaded with God. You know, I have this thorn. I have this, you know, this stake sticking into me, this messenger of Satan. I've got all I, I was pleading with God. Here's what God said. Therefore, Now he's giving his conclusion, what he's learned. I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Why is Paul able to boast about his weakness? That the power of Christ might rest upon him. He's gonna boast about the fact that he's weak because in his weakness, what he sees at work is the power of Christ resting on him. So, so you say to yourself, do you need, do you want Christ's power in your life? Of course we do. We, we've probably prayed that way. So if you do want that, don't exalt in what you're bringing to the table. Here's what I'm bringing to this, Lord. Boast instead in your frailty. In other words, I'm not bringing anything. That's, that's the reality, Lord. The, the, the reality of this situation is I'm, I'm helpless without you. And, and with that, what this text is telling us is that as we do that, the power of Christ rests on you. Amen? That's good news. That's gospel good news. Now let's look at verse 10. For the sake of Christ then, so he's given us some conclusions, right? Therefore, I will boast, but he's got more. For the sake of Christ then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. And we're all reading that going, did you have to list so many? (laughs) Like, how many more are you going to list, Paul? Could you just have stopped with weakness? But you had to throw in insults and all these other things that we have to be content with. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. 
How is Paul able to remain content in weakness, insults, hardship, persecution, calamity? How does anyone remain content in those circumstances? How is that possible? You should also know that the word content there, it can be be translated into another English word, delight. It's also been translated not not just uh, delight, but but to be uh, to be thought well of. Uh, so so you're going to think well of these things, um, and and so the scripture is saying that Paul delights in these things, and these specific descriptions that he gives are intentional. They're of the spirit of God for us, for Paul, for his readers. So as I go through these, I want you to take notice in your own life, how much do you delight or are content in these things in your life? So weakness, what is he referring to there? Well, weakness refers to our fallen human frailties. See, these are not all the same words. They have different meanings. Insults. How how many of us are going to be content and delight in being mistreated by others by word or action? Hardship refers to experiences that make your life extremely uncomfortable. There's something going on in your life that is just making it very, very uncomfortable. It's creating hardship for you. Persecution. That refers to physical affliction at the hands of hostile enemies. Those who oppose you are seeking to to hurt you physically. Calamities are devastating circumstances, significant, life-altering crisis. And the word that Paul uses here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God is that we are to be content and delight in these things. To be well-pleased with them is another phrase. How is that possible? Well, he tells us that at the beginning of verse 10. For the sake of Christ. For Christ's glory. For Christ's sake. I was thinking about that in preparation that this is what is to motivate us to be okay with words like these in our lives. And isn't it a travesty that we have turned a phrase that is supposed to sustain us through the toughest difficulties of life, we've turned that phrase into a law-breaking taking of the Lord's name in vain. We swear with the very phrase that God gave us to sustain us in difficulty. Think about that. See, Satan is such a deceiver. He knows what he's doing, even in giving people phrases and words to say in their anger to offend God. Because he knows that what's actually supposed to happen is that phrase is supposed to give us the ability to go through these things with contentment, delight. So he turns it into something else. 
So if that phrase, if that phrase ever comes from your lips, for Christ's sake, it should be for one purpose, to give him glory in spite of your circumstances, not to vent your anger by profaning his name. May God have mercy on us, right? May God have mercy on us. So as we think through this text, and there's a lot to think through and a lot of truth here, uh, what can we consider, think about um, in our own lives? Hopefully there's already been a lot there, but I want to give you uh, a couple of things, specifically three. First one is this. We've not, we have not been saved to focus all of our efforts, time, and energy on the removing, relieving, and avoiding of suffering. The, the Bible is not a book about all the techniques to apply to your life to avoid those things that were listed on that screen before. In, in uh, verse 10. What, that's not what the Bible is. Here, here's the way to avoid all that. Actually, what the Bible is, is a book designed to help us to learn how to be sustained through those things. So we're not trying to transcend suffering like the Buddhists. We're not. That's very different. We're Christ followers, right? There's the cross to remind us. We endure and we persevere through difficulty because that's who we are. That's who our Savior is is. So we're not focused all of our time, all of our energy on on these other parts where we're trying to relieve and avoid and remove. It's not like we're also, we're not masochists either. We're We're not trying to make it happen, but we are trying to be sustained through it. Second, suffering is not an obstacle for us to avoid at all costs. It is the gateway. This is, this is key. Think about it this way. It is the gateway to God's sustaining presence, grace, and strength. How many of us pray for God's presence? How many times have you prayed for God's grace? How many times have you prayed for God's strength? But I want you to realize what the scripture is teaching here. What it's telling us is how he provides it. So if you're saying, dear Lord, give me grace, dear Lord, give me strength, saying, okay, here comes some hardship because that's how I give it. Here comes some things because that's how I give it. Because as you're weak, then you are strong in me. Isn't it amazing that it's through suffering that we experience the most intimate presence of God's grace because it's his design. Yet, what do we pray for? We're always praying for deliverance, just like Paul did. Paul did pray that way. He pleaded that way. So yes, we do. We yearn for the miracle. We want the miracle. We want for God to make a way out of the storm, right? God, make a way out of the storm. And if God does, and many times God does, we thank God, right? When that happens, we thank God, and we give him the praise, and we give him the glory, and we say we're thankful. But what happens when we endure the storm? Some other things happen. We're still, we're still grateful, we're still thankful, but we grow. We mature. Our faith is stronger. We trust him more. His presence is more real. And God looks at us and says, well, those are the very things you prayed for. I was thinking about that as I was just going through this, that someone should have wrote 
something like that. Like, you know, the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete. Someone should have wrote that, and then we would know. But this is what happens in and through the storm, the fruit of being sustained by the Lord through trial. This is, that's not the description of what happens in the, in, the, in the miracle of deliverance. And I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for the miracle of deliverance, but maybe we can think about adjusting our prayers some. Because not, maybe not every prayer should be, get me out. Maybe they should be, sustain me through, Lord Jesus. Third, Our humility and weakness and suffering invites God's gracious presence and sustaining power. Our humility and our weakness in the suffering actually invites in God's gracious presence and power, which is what we want. Paul prayed for deliverance from the thorn, the stake that was impaling his life, and his compassionate God The Lord's compassions fail not, right? His mercies endure forever. He abounds in love. He said, no, this compassionate God, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Paul's weakness invited God's gracious presence and his sustaining power. And Paul didn't respond with anger or frustration to his God. And I think when we see that, uh, when you look at verse eight and nine, you, you see the answer that he, 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 he wasn't responding with anger. He was responding with, uh, here's what he's learned, humility. And so let me encourage you to respond to your God with humility today. Here's a question that I want you to just think about. Is the Lord's grace enough for you? Is the Lord's grace enough for you? Is it enough for me? Is the sustaining grace of your God enough for you? I pray that it is. I pray that this text helps you to see that, that if Christ joins you in the deep water of your suffering, if he's with you in the deep water of your suffering, is that enough? Or do we just want the miracle more? Just get me out. That's all I want from you, God. Get me out. Or do we invite Christ and his presence into our hardship? So as we can see, where we started and where we are now, relieving suffering is not really God's primary goal for us. His goal is to help us get to the place where we find our God, his grace, his presence, his power, and all all that he offers to us, it is enough for us. It is sufficient for us. So may may Christ, may his grace, and may his power be made complete in your weakness, whatever it is. And may Christ be enough for all of us. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Lord God, thank you for your word. We need it because it is so 
it is just so different from the world and the culture around us. We hear every day things that seem to be opposite of what we read in your word, in your revealed truth. Help us, Lord, in our weakness. All of us here that are going through calamity, hardship, insults, persecution, difficulty, whatever it may be, Lord God, may, may through, through their own weakness, may each person here just be able to say, I am weak, Lord, in this. I have nothing to offer. Join me. Make your presence known. I need you. And I want your power to be perfected in me through this. Sustain me by your grace. Help us, Lord, to get to the place where Christ is enough for all of us. In Jesus' name. Amen.